Make your way back in and sit down. Come on in. And again, I want to wish all of you fathers a happy Father's Day. I trust that it is for you. My grandson asked me as he came in if I ate in bed today. Because on Father's Day, you're supposed to eat in bed. Apparently. I didn't know that. No one ever told me over all these years. And now I've learned it once I have a grandson. And then he wanted to know and see if I was going to play wildly out in the rain. Because the best thing you can do on Father's Day is play wildly outside. And it happens to be raining. So, I wish all of that for you fathers. Alright? Breakfast in bed. Uh, too late. Uh, go dance out in the rain wildly. Alright? <clears throat> Okay, 1899, 1899, four newspaper reporters met by chance on a Saturday night in a Denver railway station. They represented the four major newspapers of Denver at that time, and their editors had sent them out to dig up a story that could be front page headline news the next day. So they went to uh, the railway station hoping to spot a dignitary or perhaps a celebrity, but alas, none showed up. Frustrated, one of them made the decision they would make up a story and post that story as their headline. They all laughed about it and said, well, let's go next door to the hotel and have a beer at the bar and talk about it. So they went over and they had a beer together. And then they made the decision, instead of one story being made up, how about all of us make up a story? And instead of each of us individually making, how about we make up one big story? And so they laughed. They thought, that was a great idea. They toasted their brilliance. And they said, well, if we're going to make up a story, we shouldn't make up a story that's local because that's too easy to check on. So let's make up a foreign story. And at that point in time, in their inebriated state, the furthest country they could think of was China. So they said, let's make up a story about China. And so they thought about it for a while, and so they made up a story together that was the Great Wall of China was going to be torn down in order to advance international relations, and the American government had been contracted to tear it down. And they laughed, and they thought, this is such a great idea. The next day... Headline news, this is a true story, Denver Times, Great Chinese Wall Doomed, Peking Seeking World Trade. Now again, you and I know this was a phony story, but soon other papers across America picked it up, and then ultimately around the world until it finally reached China that an American crew was coming to demolish the Great Wall of China, their national monument. Obviously, some of the Chinese people were upset. Others were enraged. There was a particular member of a secret society that heard this news and began to foment rebellion against this idea. And within a short time, they attacked Peking, and within a couple of days, they had slaughtered hundreds and thousands of embassy officials and missionaries. Within one month, 12,000 troops from other countries had come in order to protect their embassy. Now, for those of you that perhaps remember back to your social studies days, 
what I have just described to you, every sixth grader would know. It's called the Boxer Rebellion. All started by a phony newspaper story. Words have power to destroy. Words can bring encouragement and light, but they also can bring death and destruction. Uh, How many of you remember when you were younger and you wanted to guard your sweet little heart from wounds when somebody had said something that could have hurt you? Do you remember the kinds of phrases you used to say back to them? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never... Is that true? Words can really hurt, or they can heal. Think about words for a minute. For those of you that are perhaps here today married, do you remember two little words that you said on your wedding day that changed the course of your history forever? I do. Two little words, three letters, transformed your life forever. Today, we're looking at James chapter 3. So if you want to turn there, James chapter 3. And this is going to be a two-part message. I just felt like it was too much to try to fit it into one. So this is going to be a two-part message. Back in James 1, you don't have to turn there, but back in James 1, James alludes to this issue of the tongue when he says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious or spiritual and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. And here in James chapter 3, James reintroduces the whole idea of the tongue. Now, there's an interpretive rule that you need to understand if you're going to read your Bible with any kind of wisdom and insight. And that interpretive rule basically is this. Ready? This is like the major rule. God is not senile. God never forgets having said it before. God doesn't get paid per word. So he doesn't repeat himself in order to make some more money. Whenever you see a repetition in the Bible of a theme or a word, God's doing it on purpose that there would be greater emphasis. So that when James alludes to it back in chapter 1, and now he picks it up again in chapter 3, it's not because God forgot he said it back in chapter 1, it's because he wants to make double emphasis. So, we're going to read James chapter 3, verse 1, if you would follow along. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so... The tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Um, <clears throat> how many of you have ever said something that one nanosecond later you wish you could take it back? And for the rest of you, I'll speak on lying next week. Um, the truth is, every one of us struggle throughout our lives with our mouths, with our tongues, saying things we ought not at times we ought not. We looked today at a verse. Look back at it, verse 8. It's a terrible verse. It's a terrible verse. It says, no man can tame the tongue. Nobody, no one can tame the tongue. So what is our hope? I think we're going to find out in James that our hope is deeper than even that. Even that which man cannot do, James is going to show us God can do. And that's what I want us to look at. If you want to, you can turn back to Matthew chapter 15. Um, Jesus, I think, helps us a little bit in our understanding of our problem with our tongue. Now, Keep in mind, the tongue itself has been measured and weighed. It's approximately two ounces and approximately four inches long, and it's comprised of nerves and muscles covered by skin and membrane. That's the tongue. The tongue in itself is neutral. And what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 15 is that there's a deeper problem than even the tongue. Look at Matthew 15 and verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. And then he goes up to verse 11. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. And then he skips up to verse 17. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Jesus makes it clear that our deeper problem is not really our tongue at all. Our deeper problem is our heart. And that what needs to change if our tongue is going to change is our heart. So whenever throughout today and next Sunday, whenever you hear me reference the word tongue, I want you to have like this kind of switch in your mind that transfers the track of the train. And I want you to think not tongue, I want you to think heart. Because Jesus just told us that's our real problem. Out of the heart come the issues of life that then flow out of our mouth off of our tongue. If you think tongue... The problem is, you're going to do your best to try to curb your tongue. 
You're going to try to be quiet. You're going to do like I did for a while, where you carried that little card around, and it just said those two little words, shut up. You're going to do your best to keep your temper. You're going to keep your mouth shut. You're going to bite your tongue until one day, after perhaps weeks of feeling good about yourself, one day something happens and you blow up. And what comes out of your mouth is so vile and evil and bad that when you're done, you're thinking, I can't believe that just came out of me. Where did that come from? That's not me. And Jesus would say, yes, it is. It came out of your mouth because it was already in your heart. And he wants to deal with something deep in our heart. The answer that James advocates isn't that we all become Trappist monks where you are forbidden to speak. The answer that he's talking about is that we actually have a changed heart. And that's where he's going today. Now, if I could develop a camera that could look into your heart, And we could develop that picture and put it on display on our screens up here. If every thought that you've ever had, every motive of your heart, every dream you've ever had, when you thought you weren't responsible for it, but it still came out somewhere, if everything that was inside of you could be posted up here on the screen, how many of you would be willing to stand up and say, I'll do it? Most of us recognize we got stuff inside. We might put on a veneer of looking good, but most of us recognize we got stuff inside that we desperately want to see changed. Well, we don't have a camera that can do that anyways. But I've learned after a few years of life that actually our heart is pictured daily. And it's developed not on Kodak paper. It's developed on our tongue, that what comes out of our tongue reveals what's in our hearts. And so, James chapter 3, verse 1, James says, and again, it's kind of like the undertaker, sooner or later he's going to get you. You're going to reveal what's inside of you on your tongue. James chapter 3, 1, my brethren, not let, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Why does James who's going to talk in chapter 3 about the tongue, start with the teacher. Well, what is one of the primary tools of every teacher? Their tongue. It's what they have to say. We live in a day and age in which everyone wants to be the answer man. Everyone wants to give advice. Everyone wants to be seen as the expert. I mean, people ask questions. I mean, I've been in meetings, and I've done it, and you've done it. So it's not like somebody's worse than others. Sad in meetings where somebody asks a question that actually has nothing to do with me and I feel honor-bound to give my counsel. It's not even my business. And we all do the same kind of thing. James talks to us about three reasons why being a teacher is such a weighty thing. And I want you to look at that real quickly. Number one, a teacher is responsible to teach the truth. Not just your own opinion. We are disallowed by God, by calling, from using this pulpit, this podium, as a platform for venting about our personal opinions, whether they be spiritual or political. We're disallowed. We are called to teach and to preach the truth. Um, most of you remember that I have this, like, this boot on my foot. 
and uh, it's heavy, it weighs a ton. But I went to the doctor, I went to the orthopedic surgeon uh, a little over a week ago, and I had sprained my ankle. Just sprained an ankle, that's all. Just sprained ankle. And uh, it hurt pretty bad for about a week, and then I just went back to doing my workouts like normal. But every day when I would get done during the day, I'd take my shoe off and my ankle was, you know, swollen all up like a pumpkin. It was just ridiculous. I'd get done with a workout and I could barely get my shoe. It was just crazy. So finally, I went to my doctor and I said, if I wore like one of those elastic sleeves, would that help? And she said, absolutely not. What would help would be to go to the orthopedic surgeon. So I went and I told him what had happened and I thought he would say, yeah, one of those sleeves will be a real help. Give you some support. He said, well, you got three options. I said, okay, good, tell me. He said, the first option is to have your foot elevated and don't put any weight on it for several weeks. I didn't even have to say it. He knew it. He said, your second option is you wear a boot, but you can't put any weight on it, and you use crutches. I was thinking to myself, I wonder if I can get down the court faster with crutches. Third option, you can wear a boot and you can be weight-bearing, but you got to keep the boot on all the time. He says, I want you to go to bed with the boot on. He got all done giving me his own counsel. Do you know what my next words were? What's my next option? I didn't like his advice. Well, people come for spiritual advice. People come for marital advice. And when they get all done listening to us, invariably, they will say, even, or maybe they won't say, maybe they just think it. They will think and say, what's my next option? One of the things I've discovered over years is that all too often, people want to know God's will. But they want to know God's will, not so they can do it, but so they can decide whether they want to do it. They want to vote on whether or not we like God's will. Teachers and preachers are responsible for the truth. Not just truth, but the truth. To declare the truth that God has declared in His Word. James makes it clear that the responsibility and the fallout for a teacher is even greater than for anybody else. We bear greater responsibility. That's why the issue of our tongue is so important for a teacher. Number two, a teacher affects many lives and generations. I know that you guys might never understand this, but I cannot remember a time on a Sunday morning that I didn't wake up feeling sick and want to skip church. Every single Sunday, every time I've had to speak, whether it be at Elam or at other churches or on mission trips, every single time I feel sick to my stomach and everything in me wants to run away because I realize the weightiness of my responsibility. What I am about to do, what I am about to say can affect not only you, but generations to come. And I feel the weight of it. And just as serious to me is, I recognize that every single one of you represent a period of time that you're sitting here. And I don't want to waste your time. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of hours of time. I don't want to waste your time by having nothing worth saying. It's an awesome responsibility. And I sometimes hear people say things like, and I have, I've had people say, well, I feel like uh, I could say anything you've just said better. And I could say it shorter. And my thought is, you probably can. 
God bless you for being able to do it. But are you also willing to bear all of that responsibility that comes with that? The weightiness of it? What you forget sometimes is that a teacher has the greater accounting for what is taught when you stand before God. Every word that you give, you must give account. That's why for me, uh, most of you wouldn't even know this, but I want to make sure, and I do this somewhat sporadically, but I do it. I hand out sheets to people and I ask them to give evaluations. Is what I am saying the truth? Is it clear? Is it concise? Is it affecting lives as you are hearing it? I don't want to waste your time. It's a weighty responsibility. Number three, a teacher is expected to live the truth that he or she teaches. That's why in the qualifications for leadership in Titus and in Timothy, one of the qualifications is you can't be a novice. You can't be new at this. You have to have lived long enough that your life becomes proof for what you teach. Um, <clears throat> whether you know it or not, a pastor lives in a kind of fishbowl. Everybody watches them. I mean, I have people greeting me by name, talking about things, and I'm thinking, I have no clue who you are. But they've watched you. They see what you do. Uh, back in my very first church, uh, I had been there for some time, uh, preaching. I was pre at that time, I was preaching five times a week. Five times. I was preaching Sunday school, Sunday morning church, Sunday night church, Wednesday night church, and then youth group, and sometimes nursing home. So I was doing a lot of work. I was the only one. It was a small church of about 30, 40 people. And it snowed. And Jonathan was probably a couple years old. And I thought, oh. he hardly gets out of the house because we lived on a fairly significant highway. And so I took him outside in the yard, and we began building a snowman. And somebody drove by and honked their horn. Didn't think much about it. That afternoon, I got a call from that person saying, I don't appreciate the fact that we are paying you money to stand out in your yard and build a snowman with your son. We don't pay you for that. People watch you. I've had people complain about the fact that I'm driving too new of a car. Even though I've never owned a car that's newer than two years older than the current year. But they will complain, you're driving too nice of a car, or you're wearing too nice of clothes. I've had people complain that you live in too nice of a house, even though it's not my house. I can't put it in my back pocket and take it with me. It's the churches. People watch you, and ultimately they want to judge, do your words line up with your lifestyle? Is what you preach in line, not only with the Bible, but with what you are saying about the Bible. Some of the greatest preachers I know, some of the most charismatic preachers I know, have had their ministry nullified because they didn't have good character. Their life did not match their words. They preached one thing, but they lived another way. The mark of success for a believer is not how much Bible you know or how prophetic you think you are or how much money you give in the church. The mark of a good Christian is whether or not your life actually matches what you say you believe. And does it match it at home? Would your family say it matches that? 
I've said to you again and again, what you see up here in front of you on Sunday mornings is no different than what you see any other time the rest of the week. This is as good as it gets. It doesn't get any better. I don't pretend one day I don't have a different preaching voice. What I preach, teach, is what I speak and share on a day-by-day basis. Now, James is not promoting infallibility or perfection. He's merely saying we ought to live our lives uprightly because we have a greater responsibility, we who teach. And then, in verses 3 to 5, James brings in what are called uh, similes. How many of you guys know the word simile? What are the two words that are most often used for similes, to introduce a simile? Yes. Like and as. Thank you very much. That's my granddaughter. She's very smart. Like and as. So you don't say something is this. You say it's like that or it's as that. James brings in three similes. He says he talks about a horse's bit, the rudder of a ship, and finally, a fire's spark. And if you think about it, the lesson is pretty clear. He's saying in each illustration that though small in size, each affects or controls a much larger thing. That's his point. A bit small, but it can control and steer a much larger horse. A rudder proportionally is even smaller than the ship, but it's able to control and steer that ship. And then the spark can be so minuscule that you can't even see it with your eye but it has the potential of destroying a whole forest. The point James is making is the effect of the tongue is disproportionate to its size. Solomon says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now think for a moment about your words. What kind of words do you use when you get upset? When you're bothered by something? What kind of words come out of your mouth? How do you feel? What kind of words come out of your mouth without even thinking about it when you have just made a mistake? Probably my favorite word that I used for years and years until I felt really challenged by both my wife and by the Lord. Sometimes they sound alike. Um, One of my favorite words about myself for years and years and years was evil. Evil. I'm evil. I do stupid things. I say stupid things. I'm just so stupid. I'm evil. Until I felt like God began to challenge me about the words I even use about myself. Not just the words you use about others, but even how you think about and talk about yourself. Back in 1940, the nation of England was on the verge of collapse. Hitler was bombing Dunkirk with German warplanes hour after hour after hour, and England was losing hope. But in their final hours, where they were deciding what they were going to do, there were members of parliament who were asking the prime minister to sue for peace with Germany. In that hour, Winston Churchill stood up, and he said this, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the fields. We shall fight in the streets and we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. That brief speech turned the nation. And they said, we might lose, but we're going to go down fighting for freedom, not oppression. Words can be destructive or they can be inspirational and life-giving. 
Think about the kinds of words you use, words that come out of our mouths on almost a regular basis, sometimes without even thinking about it. Words like gossip. What's gossip? Gossip is basically saying behind people's back what you would not normally say to their face. Stories told of a woman in a local church that was a gossip. And she would rip people apart up and down, so much so that though people didn't like it, they were almost afraid of her. Her tongue was so sharp. Finally, one day they had a new member come in by the name of George. He was an older guy. George started coming to church, and this gossip over in the side began to speak a little bit too loudly about George and saying he had to be a drunk because she saw his truck parked in front of a bar for hours and hours and hours, and everybody knows what he must have been doing. He's a drunk. George overheard it over on the side. It wasn't for him. It's behind his back, but he overheard it. Didn't say a word. Didn't say one word. He just turned around and walked out of the place. That night, he took his truck and parked it in front of her house all night and walked away. <laughs> Gossip that can destroy. It's easy to laugh, but let me ask you, how many times do things come out of your mouth about somebody else that that person doesn't need to know? It's not about them. It's not for them. How many times do we say things about people that they don't have to have that? It's about someone, to someone, but they don't need to know it. I think we'd probably all be amazed if we actually ever really listen to what comes out of our mouth. Another one beyond gossip is flattery. That's saying to a person's face what you wouldn't normally say behind their back. It's today's day, it's called affirming. But do you know, a lot of affirming is very manipulative and not even real. It's phony. People say nice things and they don't even think it or mean it. One of the things that bugs me, uh, I came close to saying it this week, but I didn't. I tried to keep my mouth shut. Um, uh, one of the things I don't like is when people walk up to people that they don't even really know, but you're in a religious environment. People come and say, whoa, man of God, how are you doing today? And everything in me wants to say, you don't even know me. How do you know I'm a man of God? For all you know, I could be the devil incarnate. False flattery that tries to gain favor with somebody by saying things to their face to make them feel good so that they will like you more. And we play the political game. Be nice. I believe affirmation is important, but I think it ought to be genuine. And when it's genuine, I think it actually changes the heart of people. When it's thoughtful, you actually look at a person's life and you speak into that life prophetic words of hope and a future. I think that's the best kind of affirmation. Another kind of speech that we use that's destructive is criticism. Criticism is expressing disapproval or disdain of something or someone based on perceived faults or mistakes. Does our speech encourage people and build people up, or does it point out all that's wrong with them? The truth is most of us know well what's wrong. We don't need some rocket scientist coming along to tell us what's wrong with us. We already know. What we need is someone who could come along and say, I, I see something in you that's better than that. I see hope for what God has for you. Think about your conversations. Are they inspirational? Are they encouraging? Or are they destructive? You know, it starts with just two people. 
you know, these two people have an issue. And pretty soon it spreads. You get involved. It's not even your business, but you get involved. And pretty soon it spreads, and pretty soon a family is divided. And then pretty soon a church is divided. A community is divided. In my first church that I was the pastor of, it was almost like having two churches. Because we had two families that had intermarried, they married different ones, and they got upset with each other. They wouldn't come to church the same day, so they took turns. That's what our words can do. In verses 6 through 8, James gives us some further illustrations of the potential of the destruction of a tongue. First, he likens the tongue to an out-of-control fire. Uh, when I was a kid, one of my responsibilities, I don't know how many of you guys did this, one of my responsibilities was the burn barrel. How many of you guys had burn barrels back then? Remember that? Burn barrel. Uh, we had to take the garbage out, put it in the barrel. We had to set a piece of paper on fire, put it in the barrel, let it catch fire, make sure it was caught fire. Then we had to put a little screen on top of it that was really fine mesh so the sparks couldn't get out and cause any other kind of damage. That was my job. And one day I was with some friends and we were kind of in a hurry and we're monkeying around. And we put the thing in and we put it on fire. And then we put the mesh on it and everything was great. But then I thought to myself, I'm the one who has to mow all of this. All the yard around it, all this stuff has to be mowed. And I, I don't like to have to do that kind of work. Wouldn't it be cool if we could just burn up this stuff and that way it wouldn't? So we, we took some gas because I thought it probably wasn't dry enough. We took some gas and poured it around the barrel. And I lit a match and I struck it and it started burning. And I, me and my buddies, Howard and Normie, we're, we're standing back and we're thinking, this is so cool. I'll never have to mow this this year. So much fun. And it spread a little bit more. And I'm thinking, that's okay. I don't mind out there a little bit more. Then it began to spread and spread. And we're out there trying to stamp it out with our feet, and it's not doing good. Finally, I ran back to the barn, and I got some burlap bags and a hose. And we're trying to put the fire out for all we're worth. By the end of the day, when the volunteer fire department left, and I had gotten the whipping I deserved, I had destroyed acres and acres and acres of our property. And... If I remember correctly, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure we had calf pens that we had put out there along the hedgerow. I think every one of them burned down. A little fire can soon be out of control. That's what James is talking about. And then he even adds this. He says, the tongue is set on fire by hell. The word hell there is not Hades that you might think of, you know, the place with fire. The word hell is the word Gihana. Gihana was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where all of the sewage for Jerusalem, which was a major city of about 2 million people, all of the sewage flowed into Gihana. James is saying our tongue can be a cesspool sometimes. You say, well, I'm not swearing. But you're using crude speech that's inappropriate for a believer, for a Christian to use. James then says the tongue is like an untamed beast. Um, I don't know how many of you guys like Discovery Channel. I love watching animals. I, when we have gone to Africa, I love being on safari. Some of you here in this room have been on safari with us. I love seeing these things. But one of the interesting things is you go to SeaWorld or, or perhaps Bush Gardens, and you see these killer whales who have been trained to obey with a hand signal or lions and elephants 
trained to obey their masters. And everything works out really well. But we all love watching the YouTube videos where one of these animals suddenly gets in its mind, wait a minute, I'm powerful. I don't have to obey you at all. And they go on a rampage, and it's kind of like, unbelievable, we're looking at this, eyes big, it's like, whoa! That's what James is saying. You can tame animals, and not even a great job at that. But we can't really tame our tongue without God's help. And finally, James says, the tongue is full of deadly poison. I was talking with Danny Conklin this week. Danny uh, had smashed his foot badly and had to have surgery. And they put a cast on, he thought everything was going well, until about a week later it started to stink. And he said the odor got worse and worse and worse. And he called the doctor and the doctor says, oh, don't worry about it, it's okay, it's just casts always smell a little bit, you sweat. He says, no, you don't understand, there's something wrong. And finally he said, well, if you really in there, come in. So they came in, they took one whiff as he walked in the door, and they said, okay, the cast's got to come off. And Danny talked to the nurse, who does this all the time. This is an orthopedic surgeon office. Does it all the time. She says, I'm going to take the cast off. And he says, um, do you have a strong stomach? She goes, oh, I do this all the time. It's not a problem. So she takes her little saw, and she goes right down. And she, takes her, she opens it, and as soon as she sees it, she starts to gag and runs out of the room to throw up. The leg had popped open, and it was oozing the infection and the poison. I, I thought, what a great story he told me. <laughs> I wish he'd taken pictures. That's the picture James is painting for you. He says, your tongue is just like that. If you don't get God involved with your tongue, it stinks to high heaven and it's oozing all over the place. And then in verses 9 to 12, James talks about how inconsistent our tongue is. First, he compares it to humanity, and he says, opposites ought not come from the same source. And then he points to nature, and he said, opposites cannot come from the same source. He says, it's inconsistent for you to sit here in church, hands raised, singing songs to God, and then be nasty to your brother or sister who is made in the image of God. He said, those things ought not be. John puts it this way, you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, then the truth of God is not in you. How can you say you love God who you can't see when you don't even love your brother who you can see? Ask yourself today, what is your tongue regularly revealing about the condition of your heart? And when I talk about tongue, I'm not just talking about the words, I'm talking about your tone your attitude, your demeanor, all of that's reflected in how you speak to people. My father, um, a good man, gone home to be with the Lord, but back in his pre-Christ days, one of his joys in life was to get in fights. He loved to fight. He was the president of a local bar, and his idea of a good weekend was a couple of good fights. He loved to prove how strong he was. But the thing that struck me about my dad that scared all of us kids, and it even scared other men, was when my dad would get mad, his eyes would get big and bloodshot. In fact, one of the grandkids at one point called him bug-eyed, which only a grandkid could get away with it. That's the kind of thing that happens when we talk. Our face, our tongue reveals what's going on inside. 
I think often about bumper stickers that people have on their cars. And part of me wants to say, why don't you take the Jesus bumper sticker off your car if you're going to talk and act like that? Because it's kind of an inconsistent witness. Your own angel jumps out of the car the way you drive. And you want to put a Christian bumper sticker on there? Or how about when the waitress takes too long to come to take your order? And then when she does finally bring your food, it's the wrong food. What comes out of your mouth? You've been waiting for an hour. You're hungry. What comes out of you that reveals the condition of your heart? James is clear. Only God's grace can tame the tongue. Not man, not woman. Only God's grace. Uh, one of the old saints that I used to love to read, J. Sidlow Baxter, um, he has a well-known commentary called Explore the Book, where he goes through every book of the Bible. Just an amazing man. He said this, The proof that God's Spirit is in your life is not that you speak in an unknown tongue. It's that you control the tongue you do know. It's not that you speak in an unknown tongue. It's you actually control the tongue you do know. We're going to end here today. We're going to pick up next week on tongue and finish it out with what James gives us as our solution. But I'm going to ask you if you would stand, if you would. What kinds of things regularly slip out of your mouth gate? When you have time to just sit quietly and think, what kind of thoughts are in your mind? You give thought to the things of God, His presence, His pleasure in your life what he has said about you, and what he has said about those around you. What kinds of things come out of your mouth? And just allow God to just kind of quicken that for you throughout this week. That's what I'm praying. Throughout this week, I pray that this week, God would actually begin to quicken. Maybe for you, the problem has been some gossip. You, you get some piece of information, and you've got to talk to somebody about it. And yeah, you phrase it as a prayer request, but it's still just gossip. You, you phrase it as a request for counsel, but really you're just letting somebody know what you know. Or maybe for you, it's flattery. You know, you, you say nice things to people's face, but you do it in order to get favor from them, not because you really think they deserve it. Or maybe for you, it's criticism. It's easier to find out what's wrong with people than what's right with people. What kinds of things come out of your mouth? Ask God throughout this week to show you, to kind of pay attention to your mouth. How are you as a man, as a woman? How are you at revealing your heart? Father, in Christ's name, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I know for me, this is like the chapter in James that most often I go back to that I say, God, you need to change my heart. As much as I try to control my tongue, if you would change my heart, I wouldn't have to worry so much about what comes out because it's going to come out pure. And so, Lord, I'm asking that you would do the same for each of us. Cause us to awaken to the truth of your word found here in James chapter 3. That we would see the importance that what we say can bring life or death, encouragement or destruction. And Lord, we want to be those kinds of people who are building up, who are edifying, who are encouraging. That's our cry. We believe for your help, Father. In the name of Christ, amen. So we'll finish this next Sunday, okay? God bless.